Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So we're continuing with our sermon series that we're busy with and our title tonight is The Gospel by Grace Alone. By Grace Alone. Last week he preached about justification through faith alone. This week we're going to look at the gospel by grace alone. Very important for us to understand that and to understand also the topic of justification. What does it mean to be justified through faith by grace? grace. Justification simply means that when we are in a court of law, standing before God, and the verdict comes whether we are innocent or guilty, then we are justified. We are proven innocent. We are in right standing with God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The moment God saves us, the moment we place our faith in Him, that very moment we are justified. Sanctification is a different thing. It's a process of sanctifying us to look more like Jesus. And initially when salvation happens, there's quite a big change. And then gradually we grow to become more like Jesus. Day after day, week after week, month after month, hopefully. So on this topic by the gospel by grace alone, we looked at this passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians 11 from verse 1 to 4, where it says that Satan wants to deceive us by taking our thoughts captive and by leading us astray in the, the battle for our minds and in leading us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And he does this with the following. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And we saw that this misleading that's coming, this false teaching that's coming and creeping into the church and that will continue all the more until the end times is not so easy to see. In the context of the cultural Christianity that we live in, everybody believes the gospel and everybody believes in Jesus. But the question is, which gospel? What Jesus? Being led by a spirit, but what spirit? Very important questions for us to ask. And like we also saw that these people that's coming and proclaiming this different Jesus, different spirit and different gospel, they masquerade themselves as apostles of Christ. And even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. No wonder that his workers disguise themselves as workers of righteousness. Not so easy to see. And we said in short that the enemy wants to distort the image of God, that is Jesus Christ, the person and works of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel and we focused on the image of God being found in Jesus we started last week with the message of the gospel we're going to continue with the gospel this week and something that's important for us to remember as we start with the message of the gospel like we said it's, it's difficult to see even the, these messengers that come difficult to see them and Paul says they sound wise they sound clever they look nice presentable difficult to see and what's important for us to remember when it comes to the gospel is that the authority of the gospel is not located in the messenger, but in the message itself. The authority of the gospel is not found in the one proclaiming the message. The authority of the gospel is in the message itself. You see, Paul writes in Galatians 1, speaking about this work-based salvation that they have a problem with. 
And in verse 8 he says, even if we or an angel comes and proclaims a different gospel than the one you received, let him be accursed. Doesn't matter if it's an apostle, doesn't matter if it's an angel, a heavenly being can come and proclaim something to you, but it's a different gospel, then let him be accursed. The authority is not found in the messenger. It's found in the message. You see, we regularly make this mistake as people in our day and age. If we had an advertisement on that Angus Buckham was to be here tonight, this hall would be full. People would be sitting outside. They would come back from vacation to come and hear him speak. Because we often think that the messenger carries the authority and not the message itself. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to big gatherings when corporate things happen and when people like Angus comes to speak and stuff. I'm just saying be careful where you locate the authority of what is being said. And many times we think to ourselves, yes, but these people, man, they heal people and, and, and blind people see again and people stand up out of wheelchairs. Man, that's, that's some power there. It must be of God. But 2 Thessalonians 2 says, when the lawless one comes in the end times, they're going to lead people astray with all wicked deception, with false signs and wonders. But signs and wonders will be there. The feeling will be there. There will be, be a spirit working. But is it the spirit of God? That's the question. Important for us to note. It's not found in the messenger. It's found in the message itself. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 6. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes. The Jew first also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. The gospel message itself. That's why it's important for us to proclaim the gospel message. It is what saves. Not our testimonies primarily, not our lifestyles primarily, not good things that God did for us here and there. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. And the right gospel. You see, you cannot have a different gospel and still follow the biblical Jesus. You cannot have a wrong gospel and still have the biblical spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's not how it works. In the same book of Galatians, in chapter 1 verse 6, he says that, I am astonished how quickly you are turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You are turning away from the one who called you. You are turning away from Jesus himself because you are turning to a different gospel. But you cannot have the wrong gospel and still follow the biblical Jesus. Are you with me? Very important for us to understand the message of the gospel and to focus on the message of the gospel. And there's primarily two sides which people fall off from the gospel. Like any shared last week, free grace theology, lawlessness. The gospel so robbed of power and glory that it produces literally nothing in our lives. We can say that we have encountered the holy, righteous, almighty, blameless, innocent Son of God. And we have personally come to know Him and see what He did for us on the cross, yet not change. That is impossible. Like one man says, that would be saying that you were hit by a truck and you are still looking the same. That is impossible. Something with that weight, that glory, that power, you encountered and you still look the same. That is impossible. Lawlessness. Like any said. Wrong concept of by faith alone. 
faith being mentless in just an acknowledgement. If you acknowledge that somewhere, sometime, there was a man called Jesus, then you are saved. Proclaiming a type of Jesus that almost comes in the side and just wants to say, hey, I don't want to bother you in your sin and your wicked lifestyle. I just wanted to say that you sorted it. I fixed it. And you're like, sorted what? Fixed what? Like, don't worry, we'll talk about it later. Just, sorry, continue. No, it's not the biblical Jesus, not the biblical gospel. But the opposite is also true. Whenever we hear that and we see now that faith must produce works, we inevitably sometimes conclude that we are saved by our works. That's the opposite side. The law. Dead religion. Trying to earn our salvation through works. A work-based salvation. And that's what we'll be speaking about tonight. But very important for us to remember that whenever we make an effect of the gospel, part of the gospel, we change the gospel and it becomes no gospel at all. To say that an effect of the gospel is good works, is good relationships, is fruitful living. To say that no, we have to do that first in order for us to be saved, that is changing the gospel. But to take away an effect of the gospel is also to change the gospel and also becomes no gospel at all. How much can we change the gospel before it ceases to be the gospel? One percent. It's either the whole gospel, full gospel, or no gospel at all. And today we'll look at this works-based salvation. But before we start, I want to ask us a question to see where we're at tonight. And the question is, we all are going to die now. We're going to come to the gates of heaven and they're going to ask you a simple question. Are you allowed to enter and why? Are you allowed to enter and why? Just there you sit. Quickly answer that question. So it'd be yes because or no because. Yes because what or no because what? Just there you sit. Quickly answer that question. Maybe a second question. Is there something that you need to change before you can go in? Is there something you need to change in your life before you will be able to go to heaven? Just there you should quickly answer that question. Everybody have their questions? Everybody have their answers? Who wants to come and share first? Just making a joke. So if you just answered the question yes or no, and the because that followed was because I, wrong answer, wrong answer, doesn't matter what precedes the I, you have answered wrong. The only correct answer is yes or no, because God, because God, because Jesus, that is the only correct answer. You see, a works-based salvation would like to answer something like this. Yes, because I went to church regularly. I prayed regularly. I read my Bible. I gave my tithe. So yes, I am allowed to go in. Wrong answer. That is not by grace alone. That is a works-based salvation. And you are saying that I, within of myself, have produced enough righteousness to enter into heaven. Jesus didn't even have to come and die for me. I sorted myself out. Maybe for the other guys. No, because I didn't read enough. I haven't gone to church enough. I, I have not, I'm not yet paying my tithe or whatever. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. That is a work-based salvation. Is there something that I need to change before I can go into heaven? Yes, I first need to fix this, work a little bit on that, or, or focus a little bit on that. Wrong 
Wrong Even if we said yes because I believe, wrong answer. It cannot start with us. It has to start with God. Doesn't matter what precedes the eye, it's wrong from the start. The only correct answer is yes because God. And we'll look at that as we work through this passage tonight. But just to share with us a couple of the fruits of a works-based salvation. Some stuff that will be evident in your way of thinking and way of life. Same is true as with the free grace theology like Henny shared last week. So some of the fruit of a works-based salvation. Two things it will inevitably produce. One of the two is either pride or despair. It will either lead to pridefulness or it will lead to despair and depression. Because either you would think that for some other reason you actually have what it takes. You can please God. You can muster up enough power to produce good works to save yourself. And you will be very prideful and you will be condescending to those around you. Because I did well enough. They are supposed to do well enough as well. And you'll see it everywhere. In the church, the place you serve, in your workplace, in your marriage. No grace, no forgiveness. I don't need forgiveness. I am a good enough person. So when my husband or my wife wrongs me, I'm not going to forgive them. No, I am good enough. They are supposed to be too. Very condescending. Very judgmental to the people around us. Or you'll have a right revelation of the condition that we have, but not a right revelation of the solution found in Jesus. And you'll actually realize, I don't have what it takes. I cannot produce my own righteousness. And it will lead to despair. And depression. I am not good enough. But inevitably believe to that. And inevitably when you follow God. When you are busy devoting yourself to some other type of Christian discipline. Whether it's reading. Whether it's praying. Whether it's coming to church. The end goal will never be God. But it will always be something that you want from God. Your Christianity will be characterized by that. Every now and again when you're really pressing to God. And you really begin to pray, your prayers will be overwhelmed by this one single thing that you're constantly busy praying for. Lord, I want this thing. Lord, I want this thing. And when we have it, we disappear. Until we need something again, then we come back to the vending machine to put five rand in to get that bottle of Coke. But when we have the bottle of Coke, we don't put money in because why? We got what we want. You see in the parable of the two lost sons, we many times only think it's one lost son, but two sons are lost. One is in a far country and one is in the field, but neither of them are in the father's house. And while the physical distance might be greater for the younger son than for the older son, the relational distance is exactly the same. Both don't want the father. You see, when the young son comes back, the prideful young older brother says, this son of yours does not deserve all of this. I've been slaving for you all my life. I never disobeyed. I always obeyed you. And you never gave me a go to celebrate with my friends. See, he also wants something, but it's not the father. Something that the father can give. Religious. Obedience. For something that we can get from God. Does not produce life. And in both cases, God had to go out to them. The father needed to approach them. But because we need something from God. There will also be a lot of comparison. Not only in what you do and what the people around you do, but also what you have and what the people around you have. 
Are they doing more than me? Am I doing more than them? Am I a better person? Are they a better person? And you'll always be also jealous of the people around you. Never be able to celebrate the good things that they have. Every time God blesses something or some, something good happens in their life, your thought is, but what about me? Didn't I do my part? I also did something. I also served. I also went to church. Where's, where's my gift? I also want mine. Comparison. Jealousy. There will also be no assurance of salvation. You'll always doubt. Man, have I done well enough? Or you'll have maybe a prideful self, a false assurance of salvation. But rarely will there be an assurance of salvation. You see, for a Roman Catholic, the most arrogant thing you can say is to say that I am assured that I will be in heaven with God one day. So you say, how can you say that? How can you say that you have done well enough? And biblical Christianity says, I know I haven't. But the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Little to no assurance of salvation. And there will also be little to no thankfulness towards God. Little to no thankfulness towards God. I mean, many of us, we are happy when we get paid at the end of the month, but we're not really thankful, like, oh, we didn't expect this. Oh, huh? They really paid me. Maybe some of you guys are working for some bad people. If you feel like that, come speak to us afterwards. You're not supposed to feel like that when you get your pay, by the way. Like, wow, didn't, didn't think they were going to do that. Really? And you don't go to your boss and say, man, I didn't expect that at all. Okay, I don't deserve this. Don't do that. It will not end well for you. And I literally did almost nothing, and yet you guys still paid me. I am thankful. See, we don't do that. But when we have a work-based salvation, they think, no, we've done our part. Whenever God does something good in our lives, no thankfulness. I expected that. God owes me that, actually. But if I don't get that, man, I will make my voice heard. Work-based salvation. So let's, in light of that, look at what Scripture says about the biblical gospel. We're going to work through a passage in Ephesians 2, from verse 1 to 10. Let's read together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beautiful passage of scripture explaining the message of the gospel. And if we want to understand it right, there's four main parts that we have to understand when it comes to the message of salvation. 
We've said it a couple of times. We went through it in Encounter 1. We've mentioned it a couple of times in church. Who wants to help me here? What's the first one? What's the first thing that the gospel addresses? It's what we bring to the table. You see, you have humans in there, people. You'll have Jesus. You'll have the Spirit and you'll have the Father. So what is it that we bring to the table? A problem. The first part of the gospel that we have to understand is problem. People problem. The people have a problem. When we come together and see what each one brings to the table, we come then, what do we say? We have a problem. That is what we bring to the table. Not a nice thing, but a true thing nonetheless. That is what we add. That is what we have to give. In the message of the gospel, we have a problem. But then luckily for us, there is a solution found in Jesus. His death, His resurrection. That solves our problem. But then the Spirit empowers us to respond to the message of the gospel. Like any also shared, we have to respond in faith. It's not just something to acknowledge or look at or say, hey, wow, that's nice. No, 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 no. When we really understand the problem, when we really understand the solution, then we respond in faith, enabled by the Spirit. And that then restores us to the will of the Father. That is the effect of the gospel. We have to understand the problem. We have to understand the solution. We have to understand the response and the effect. We have a problem. Jesus is the solution. The Spirit enables our response and that restores us to the will of the Father. The first two is grace. The last two is faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. We having a problem and Jesus offering the solution, that is grace. Responding by the power of the Spirit and having the effect in our lives that it's supposed to have, that is faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. So let's work through each one of these pieces. Starting with the problem, let's work through it verse for verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Threefold problem. And we can sum it up with these portions of these verses this is the problem and you were dead in the trespasses and sins following the prince of the power of the air and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind threefold problem dead in sins led by the devil and destined for the wrath of god that is the judgment of almighty god that is in eternity in hell that is the threefold problem that we have. And if you do not want to acknowledge this, that somewhere in your life this was your problem or that right now it is your problem, then you are still dead in your sins. You are still led by the devil and you are still destined for the wrath of God. Why? Because you don't want to agree with Scripture. Whether it seems right to you or not, that is irrelevant. This is the inerrant Word of God. This is the problem that we have. Verse 3 says... Among whom we all once lived. We all lived this way. And we were all destined for the wrath of God. Like the rest of mankind. All dead in sin. 
all led by the devil. And I know that one seems weird to us, but we look at that a little bit more when we look at the biblical spirit the next couple of weeks. But you are led by a spirit. And you will be led by a spirit. Whether it's the spirit of God, whether it's the spirit of this world, nonetheless. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says that the spirit expressly says that in the latter days many will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to the teachings of demons. They didn't all drown when Jesus chased the pigs into the sea. They are still alive. And they will continue to be alive until they are thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus himself. One of the angels actually. And they will continue to deceive and they will continue to lead people astray. But you are led by a spirit. But more about that in the next couple of weeks. And destined for the wrath of God. You see, a works-based salvation doesn't understand the problem. A work-based salvation says, no, no, we are not dead people that are in need of being made alive again. We are good people that Jesus simply came to make better people. They are most good people. So Afrikaners Not according to scripture, we are not. We are dead in sin. We are led by the devil and we are destined for the wrath of God. Each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. That is the problem. You see, and the soon as we say now that that is not the problem that we have, we are actually good people. Jesus only wants to come and make us better people. It is no longer good news, but the gospel becomes good advice. That we need to choose to apply in our lives. And the problem that we have is not that we are dead in sin. Not that we are led by the devil. Not that we are destined for the wrath of God. The problem that we have is we don't have enough information. And Jesus simply came to come and give us good principles in life. And when we choose to apply them we will live a life of abundance. No. Not what scripture says. Each and every other religion in this world is good advice. Three pathways to peace or ten pillars to peace. Apply these couple of things in your life and you will appease the gods and you will live a blessed life. The gospel is good news that needs to be accepted. Not good advice that we need to apply here and there as it suits us in our life. Same with the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel also doesn't acknowledge the problem. The problem of the prosperity gospel is not that we are dead in sin, but it's that we are caught in poverty. That is the sin that we face around us. That is the effect of sin, poverty. And Jesus came not to make dead people alive again, but he came to make poor people rich. As if we are going to live here forever. No, no, no. We do not want to live here. We do not want to become comfortable here. We are longing for a different world. Where righteousness will reign, where death and sin will be no more. And when God himself will dwell with us again. Amen. But this is not our home. We don't want to stay here. We don't want to be comfortable here. That is not the purpose of the gospel. You see, and in light of a works-based salvation, the question needs to be asked, what can dead men do? What can dead men do? Nothing. Dead men can do nothing. Dead men cannot earn their own righteousness. They can literally do nothing. You see, many times we equate the problem with Peter 
As he walked on the water and as he began to doubt, he began to drown. Now simply that must be the problem. And all that you need to do is cry out and reach out your hand as you are drowning. Dead men do not reach out. Dead men do not cry out. We can do nothing. We can add nothing. And not only do we need help from outside of ourselves, but we need someone that is able to raise the dead. That is who we need. Not simply a good man, not simply good advice, but we need someone that can raise the dead. Luckily, the solution, verse 4 to 6, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, but God. We were dead in our trespasses. We were led by the devil. We were destined for God's wrath, but God. In Titus 3, the exact same thing. Slave to passions and pleasures, spending our days in malice and envy, hating others and being hated ourselves, but God. But when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, he saved us. But God. Colossians 1.22, we were hostile towards God and engaged in evil deeds. But God. Wow, wonderful words. But God. And note here that we are not the subject of this passage. We are the object. We receive a lot of stuff, but the main focus, the subject of this passage is God. But God, because God loved us with Christ, in Christ, with Him. God is the one doing the work. The active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and He died the death that we should have died. In our place. You see the good news of the gospel found in Jesus. Is not only did his blood wash us clean. But his perfect obedient life. Also becomes ours. When God raises us from the dead. You see if Jesus only died for us. But didn't live a perfect life for us. Then we would have been cleansed. By his blood. And then God would have said okay. Second chance. Better not mess this one up. But that is not the case. The righteousness of Christ also becomes ours. Every perfect work, every act of obedience, every loving word. Through the disobedience of one man, many became unrighteous. So by the obedience of one, many will become righteous. Through the obedience of Jesus Christ. But what do we say as people? No, we want to do it ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, but we'll try and do this one on our own. Like a little boy, like my two little boys, act vil self. Act vil self. And we can see a gunny self. But still we want to, and we cry out like little children, we want to do it on our own. And the question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why would we do that? Why, if Jesus Christ offers himself as a perfect sacrifice, do we still want to inherit our salvation through good works? 
And the reason is firstly our pride doesn't want to allow us to acknowledge that we have a problem. Our pride doesn't want us to say, no, I'm dead in my sin. I'm led by the devil. I'm destined for the wrath of God. Secondly, we want to be in control. We want to decide. We want to do something at least that decides. And we have cute little quotes like, I am the captain of my fate and the master of my soul. Scripture says, no, you are not. You are not the captain of your fate. You are not the master of your soul. You're either led by God or led by the devil, but you are not in control. The enemy wants to give us a seeming control, seeming freedom. But that is not the case, according to Scripture. You are not in control. Thirdly, we want some bargaining rights. You see, if we bring something to the table, then we can negotiate with God. Now, I did my part. I did this. I'm not going to do that. I don't like that part of Scripture, so I'm not going to do that. I'll rather do a couple of good works to, to earn that part of my salvation. I have a little bit of bargaining rights. You see, Timothy Kelly explains a story that he was speaking to a lady about being saved by grace alone. And she said, is it really by grace alone? Is there nothing I can do? Is there nothing I can add? No good works. And he says, no, nothing. She says, man, that's scary. And he says, why? He says, because if I'm saved by grace alone, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. If a loving holy God made me alive while I was dead in my sin by no work of my own, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Because he did everything for me. And we see that right through scripture in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And God goes to Abraham and says, your only son whom you love, I want you to sacrifice him for. And what does Abraham say? No, God, that's a little bit too harsh. No, 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 I don't want to do that. Hey, no, can't I do something else? No. The scripture says early the next morning, he got up, packed his tent, and he began to walk. Because he understood that there is nothing God cannot ask of him. By grace alone. God is the one doing the work. Something that we have to understand. We see there's a story in Luke 18, verse 9 to 14, that Jesus tells. And he says, and he told the story to those who thought that they have a righteousness of their own. They trusted in themselves for their own righteousness and looked down upon others. And he says, two men went to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed and said, thank you God that I am not like other men. Extortioners, idolaters, murderers and like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of everything I get. And he said, and the Pharisee standing a while off could not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his chest said, God have mercy on me. He said. And Jesus said, the last man went home justified. Not trusting in himself for salvation. We need to understand the problem. We need to understand the solution. And the response will not be, Lord, look at all the good things I've done. No, the response will be, Lord, have mercy. Lord, make dead men alive. That takes us to the response. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not 
your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Through faith alone, by grace alone. And like Henny said, what does faith do? Faith repents of sin. Faith turns away from sin. And faith turns toward God. But you see, the thing that we should realize tonight, that even this is a gift of God. See, it doesn't say, and by grace you have been saved, this is the work of God, and through faith which you then add by yourself. No. Even faith is a work of God. You see, we either have to acknowledge that as dead men, we somehow managed to get a hold of faith, and therefore God made us alive. Or that we were dead in our trespasses, and God made us alive, and that gave us faith, and therefore we trust Christ. But God is the one that works. You see, many times, even in, in this place, the works-based salvation comes in. Okay, if I cannot add any works, then I at least want to say that I decided myself to believe. I at least want to say that I was smarter than those who do not trust God because I figured it out on my own. I came to realize that Jesus Christ is worth following and I then decided to follow him. No. It's not what the Bible says. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. When God made you alive together with Christ, he opened up your eyes and because you could see for the first time, you trusted Christ. But God did the work. It says this like, there's two glasses of water in front of us our whole life. The one filled with dirt and all kinds of gross things. And the one glass of pure, living water. It's not as if we saw the one and constantly chose the dirty one. No, we couldn't even see the pure living water. And when God came and made us alive and for the first time opened up our eyes, we saw, man, look at that glass of water and we grabbed it. But it was the work of God. He's the one that works, not us. And this is important for us to understand because if we think that our salvation is based upon us choosing well enough, then we would proclaim a gospel that men would like to choose. And we hear it many times in our testimonies as well. My life was all sort of chaos and then God came and fixed it. Choose God and he'll do the same for you. No. That's not the gospel. Let us proclaim salvation the same way we pray for salvation. How do we do that? How do we pray for salvation? God, come and save. God, come and save. There's no other way to pray for salvation and there's no other way to proclaim salvation. But God alone saves. God alone saves. See, it would be inconsistent to continuously pray for God to come and save, but when we are confronted with men to ask them to choose well. Make up your mind. You see, many people base their salvation on whether they'll be able to enter heaven or not because they prayed one another prayer one time. There was a pastor and he asked me to raise my hand and I prayed a prayer. I decided that day, that's why I can go into heaven. No, not because I decided, not because I prayed, but because God saved. That is the only answer. And when we believe that, we'll also see the pride and the comparison coming in in the way we handle those around us. And when we see the brokenness and the lostness of the people around us, we won't have compassion, but we'll think to ourselves, man, they better start choosing right because I chose right. They are not as smart as me, man. I made the right decision and they better start making the right decision as well. 
Instead of having compassion and proclaiming the gospel, that is the only thing that saves. You see in Romans 10, it says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call upon him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And the end of that passage, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we must proclaim the gospel to the people around us. While God stretches out his hand to save. Amen. Very important for us to understand this. The response is based upon salvation already received. Doesn't work. The other way around. See in Luke 7 we know the story. About Jesus going to eat at the tax collector's house. And he sits at the tax collector's house. And this sinful woman comes in. And starts crying and weeping at the feet of Jesus. Washing his feet with her tears. And drying it with her hair. And the sinful man thinks. Man if Jesus knew. What type of woman this was. He would have not allowed her. To touch him. Works by salvation. Man, if he knew that she wasn't as righteous as I am, he would have not allowed her to touch her. And Jesus, knowing the man's thought, says, there's a debt that was owed to a single man by two people. The one owed 500 rand, the other one 500,000. He forgave both debts. Who loves him more? And the Pharisee says, the man with the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Look at this woman. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. She responds well because she knows that she was dead and God has made her alive in Jesus Christ. And if you knew what type of man you were, you would have done the same. If we knew the problem, if we knew the solution, we would all fall at the feet of Jesus day after day. Knowing that we were dead in sin and God made us alive with Christ. And that then produces the effect. Verse 9 and 10. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. Not by good works but for good works. That is the effect of salvation. It's not the cause of salvation. Not by good works but for good works. I love what the Afrikaans says. To devote your life to the works that he has planned for you. To walk in them. Not to do them here and there. And to sometimes do them and other times not. But be, to be devoted to what God has planned for us. After he raises us from the dead. After he gives us faith to respond. That is the fruit of salvation. And the question that we must answer tonight is, is our lives devoted to the good works that God prepared for us? Do you know what the good works are that God prepared for you? Are you devoted to good works? In Titus 3, when it speaks about the same salvation, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5. And Paul says in verse 7, I want you to insist on this, that those who believe in God devote themselves to good works. Chapter 2, he says that he has redeemed for himself a people zealous for good works. It is the inevitable outflow of salvation. 
And you see, many times we hear this and in our traditional Christianity, we must think that we were born Christians. And like I said this morning, that is why we take such a firm stance against infant baptism. Many people have told us, man, you, 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 you go a bit too far with this baptism thing. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big of a deal because if we baptize a baby, what is he? What happened? Did it mean something or did it mean nothing? If it means nothing, don't do it. But if it means something, then that is not in line with the gospel. If he's now added to the household of God, is if sins are now forgiven, if he's now united with Christ, what baptism means according to scripture, then we say that he's not dead in his sin. He's not led by the devil. And he's not destined for the wrath of God. And that is not the truth of scripture. And because many of us believe that, we hear this, hey, your life should reflect the goodness of God by devoting yourself to good works. And because we don't see it, and we haven't been born again, and the Spirit hasn't been poured out in our hearts that cry out, Abba, Father, that assures us of our salvation, that we are sons and daughters of God, we begun to, to run around doing dead works, to point to something, to give us more or less a good idea that we might be saved. That is not the gospel. You see, when you see that there is not the effect of the gospel in your life, don't jump past one, two, and three. Because that's what most people do. They jump past the problem. They jump past the solution, past the response to the effect. And they begin to run around doing dead works to gather something that could assure them of some kind of salvation. And you'll see this in your life because it will be short-lived. If you endure in your good works, you'll be very prideful in them. And you'll constantly wear where are the others? I'm at intercession, where's the others? Why are they not praying? I'm at a small group, where's the others? I'm serving, where's the others? I'm doing my part, they should do theirs as well. No doing the work that God has called you to do out of thankfulness because he saved you. No, but out of pride and comparison. Or you will see your good works in short stints. Why? Because you are dead in your sins. You don't have the power of the Spirit to sustain the good works that God prepared for you. So always start to read the Bible with great passion and it won't last long. Start to pray with great passion and it won't last long. Start to serve or go to church and it won't last long. Because you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to sustain what God has called you to do. Dead works. And then you'll become despairing and hopeless. Or some people do little stints, you know, as if I want just, just want a, a year's righteousness. So we serve a little bit and we pray a little bit and we go to intercession a little bit and then we think, okay, we, we sold it now for this year. This, this good works must carry me through the year. I'll do some again next year if I make it till then. Then I'll work again a little bit and I'll pray again a little bit and I'll come to church again a little bit until I think, okay, no, that, that must mean I'm good now. And then we'll fall away again. No sustenance to do what God has called us to do. And if you realize that that is you tonight, don't jump past one, two, and three. If you see that this is not true of your life, that there is no result of salvation, you've been following God for 10 years and you're the exact same person. Don't jump past the problem. Don't jump past the solution. Don't jump past the response. 
And you might ask, but what must I do? Then you beat your chest and you cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is what we do then. And we pray that a holy God will come and make us alive together with Christ. That is the response. But not to jump past it. It's another question that we have to ask yourself is when did you become a Christian? I think dead people notice when someone raises them from the dead. Amen? When were you raised from the dead? When did that happen? Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3 says, Unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. When did that happen? It doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden perfect, but it means that there's an initial shift in your life. There's initial things that change. There's a different passion, a different desire. For it is God that wills in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's different desires, there's different passions that's beginning to stir up inside of you. Yes, you still struggle with stuff, but hopefully a little less as you follow Jesus more. Amen? If you've been following him for 10 years and you are at the exact same place where you say you met him the first day, where you prayed that prayer or made that decision, see the exact same person. That is not dead men coming alive again. And if that is you, cry out to God. Lord have mercy. Amen? And I want to end off us with the reason of our salvation. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And again, we are the object receiving the work, but we are not the subject. God is. So that he might display, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So that he may receive the glory, so that his grace might be shown, so that his grace might be seen. The reason for salvation is not to come and show us how worthy we are or how valued we are or how special we are. No, it's for the glory of God alone. That's the reason of salvation. We see people like St Stephen Furtick, like we said, said that no, Jesus simply came down to show men what's already inside of us. There's good things inside of you, you just need to acknowledge it once again. Not according to scripture. It's for his glory and what he came to point out inside of us was not good things. Amen. See, there's five solas of the Reformation. Sola meaning a single statement. Five solas. The Christian is saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. As revealed in Scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. As revealed through Scripture alone. For the glory of God and God is the one doing the work from beginning to end and he is the one receiving the glory from beginning to end Amen and the question that we need to ask ourselves tonight is do we know who Jesus is not this calm gentle man that simply walks around not wanting to offend anybody and just simply now and again gives people good advice now he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one through whom and to whom everything was made. The holy, blameless, innocent, almighty Son of God. And do we know who we are? Do we realize the problem that we have? And in light of that, sinful men standing before holy God, 
And the conclusion is that he made us alive together in Christ. That is the gospel. Let's stand and pray together. Yes, Lord, Father, thank you that we can come before you. And again, Lord, we pray, Father, that this won't simply be words that we hear, Lord, but that you would come and reveal, Father, this to our hearts, that we would receive a revelation, Father, for every aspect, the condition, Father, of us as humans. Important for us to understand, Father, to know how we need salvation, but also to relate properly to those around us. So that we are not surprised every time someone hurts us or someone does something that we didn't expect of them. Scripture says, most men are dead in sin, led by the devil, destined for God's wrath. And the only thing that we should expect is that they are in need of salvation. And that we have the message that is the power of God unto salvation. Let's proclaim that message. And Lord, in our Western culture, as Paul wrote those words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We have no idea what that means, Lord. In a context where Christians were killed for their faith, Lord, thrown to the lions, skulls cut open, lit a flame while thou was still alive. We live in a Christian culture. And yet we are ashamed of the gospel, Lord, and we repent of that tonight. May we not keep silent, Lord. But may we proclaim the gospel to those around us. And not a gospel that men would like to hear, Lord, but the biblical gospel that says God saves. God makes alive. God raises the dead. And he does so for his glory. And if he did that by grace alone, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of you. If you are here tonight, then there is a thankfulness in your heart towards God. There is a devotion to the good works which he had planned beforehand. There is an assurance of salvation, the spirit in you crying out, Abba Father. That says that you are a son and daughter of God. Thank God. There will you stand. Lord, thank you for raising me from the dead. And saving me while I was dead in sin. And if you are here tonight and that is not the case. And you are focused on your own good works. Which might have led to pride or despair. Just to be all. Raise your voice to God and say Lord have mercy. On me a sinner. Lord come and save. Lord come and give life. But don't do nothing. Don't just stand here tonight. Passively. Begin to speak. Move your lips. But cry out to God. Whether in thankfulness. Or in desperation for a holy God to come and save. But you pray. But don't just stand.
And for those of you crying out to God, saying, Lord, have mercy, if God starts to reveal stuff to you, sins that you need to confess, sins that you need to lay down, sins that you need to turn away from them, turn away from them. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He knows best. But there's nothing he cannot ask of you. There's people that God is laying on your heart to forgive, to go to, to make restitution with, relationships to be repeated. Do that. Do not delay. Be like Abraham. Early the next morning, he packed up his tents and he started walking. Because we know who we are and we know who God is. So we respond when he calls. Thank you, Lord, for enabling us with your grace to do what you've called us to do, Lord. And thank you for the passions, Lord, stirring up in hearts in this moment. God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you do not know what the good works is that God has called you to ask him, Lord, what are the good things that you've prepared for me? And as the desires begin to creep up in your heart, react to them, walk in them, start to move. But we are not called to sit and watch. As the Holy God gives his life and not respond. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen.